Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and our dear Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text today is taken from this temptation of Christ, but I will add to this text the words of the sermon which Jesus preached immediately after his temptation. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, he says, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. That's where we get the word, uh, the gospel, the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Here ends our text. The season of Epiphany, which begins Sunday-wise today, is uh, there are a number of different levels, if you will, to what this season is for us. On the one hand, it kind of represents what New Year represents, and that is that there's kind of that new leaf thing. What are we going to do with our life? There's some reflection about the things that we need to change, about the things that we need to do differently in our life to make it right, certainly right with God. There's also that element that comes along with the appearance of the wise men, which is oftentimes celebrated at Epiphany, and that is that these wise men were Gentiles, and there is this incredible, beautiful story about these people who were non-Jews, who were suddenly able to come in to worship Christ, a gift of God being given to people who are non-Jews. And of course, that brings with it that whole evangelism, that reaching out into the world, bringing the gospel to the world in which we live, a beautiful theme of epiphany. And then, of course, uh, theologically, the very thing which makes it possible for us as non-Jews, as Gentiles, to be brought into God, fellowship with God, to be given all the gifts of the Holy Spirit, this is something which is made possible by this teaching of justification by grace through faith, which is a salvation that is not our own doing. It's a gift from God, lest any man should boast. And that idea that by trusting in what God's word says, by what Christ has given unto us, that this is how we, by clinging on by faith, obtain all the wonderful gifts of heaven, of eternal life, of the forgiveness of sins, of the resurrection of the body, and eternity in the presence of God. Of course, this theme of Epiphany also begins with the baptism of Christ. And upon the baptism of Christ, immediately after his baptism, the Holy Spirit picks him up and throws him out into the desert and there, for 40 long days, he experiences unbelievable temptation by the devil. What he is saying to us here also has different levels to it. On the one hand, it is this humiliation of Christ. In order to become our Savior by taking on human flesh and blood, he's going to experience everything that we experience in our lives. Every temptation that we face, he faced every single trial and tribulation and every dark moment of despair that we face, he faced. It also 
means this tribulation of Christ that he is fulfilling for us, I guess, a righteousness that we could not do on our own. Like a soldier who is going through all the rigors of training for advanced operations, he's the only one who can actually go through it. But in the process of enduring all these tribulations, of being, in fact, the one who overcomes them, he not only is that for us, but he is now also showing us how we can, by God's help and strength, face and overcome tribulation or temptation. He is showing us what it means to fight, to overcome temptation. Our common experience in life, things that I think we all go through, we all kind of, I think, know what sin is. We've got the Ten Commandments, don't we? That we can look into that mirror and see ourselves there. That first table of law, we have it in our confession. that We haven't loved God with our whole heart. We haven't loved our neighbor as ourselves. And of course, there being a summary of the commandments, we've just simply not lived up. But it doesn't always dig in. It doesn't always reach us because it's a little more abstract, a little bit more like math. How does one apply it in our lives? It isn't oftentimes until we actually face temptation that we really begin to start taking and understanding what sin is. We start taking it seriously. It's when that person says something or does sing something against us. Oh, yes, we understand the Eighth Commandment and that what they did was wrong, but it, when we want to be able to turn around and let them have it, we want to be able to stick it in their nose, we want to be able to make sure that justice is done, we begin to understand what hatred is and we understand the power that can go with it. And it isn't just a mere matter of human emotions. The power of temptation has behind it the power of this evil one who is there tempting Jesus in the wilderness. I've been reading a book called Common Grace. It's a story about a pastor up in Minnesota, of course, and a pastor who and his wife who lose their daughter and she is killed. And then the townspeople begin to speculate on who may have done it, and they think it might be so-and-so, and pretty soon the anger, the wrath of all the townspeople is directed against this person, powerfully tempted to hate, powerfully tempted to make somebody punished when in fact that person was never guilty at all. That's the nature of temptation. Jesus is facing what we might call the three mega temptations here. In a sense, they're the mother of all different forms of temptation. The first one, well, Jesus goes without bread for 40 days without food, and they, he's hungry. Humanity, sign of his humanity. And the devil comes and says, why don't you, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread? Bread represents all our needs of body and soul in our life, I think, yeah. And what happens when we get denied our basic needs of life? When we don't have enough food, when we don't have health care, when we 
don't have good shelter, when we don't have enough income to be able to buy the things for our life that we would like to have, what happens when these things get denied us? We get mad. Mad maybe at the people who are responsible, but also we discover that we oftentimes get mad at God. And we say inside our hearts, why is God denying these things to me? And the answer to that is what? That we expect that God gives good things to good people and bad things to bad people? Somehow in our mind we have this idea that God owes us those things. And that's where we have to go first if we're going to ever undo the power of temptation. You see, not even Jesus had a spirit of entitlement. As the Son of God, who I guess from our perspective would have every right to be able to demand all these things from his Father, he places himself totally in the hands of a gracious God and believes that what God gives to him, no matter what, even if he denies it, he does so out of love and out of grace itself. To take our worth and our value, our relationship with God, on the basis of what we think we deserve, this will always fall apart will always end up being angry with God or somebody else. We have to first say, no, I don't deserve anything. Now, Jesus not only chose not to make that claim, even though he could have, but for us as sinful people, as the scriptures say, there's none on earth that doeth good in sin not. We have no claim to anything. Everything that God gives to us, he gives as a gift to undeserving people. But what gives to us the confidence that in all that he does, he is giving to us what we need? It comes from the fact that in the same way that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with those words, you are my Son whom I love, every one of us who have been baptized into Christ have the exact same promise that as though we were Christ himself that God has made us his own children and what he gives to us and will give to us because we are his baptized children will always be for our good no matter how difficult or tribulating it might be. The second temptation has to do with the power of the world and its materialism and its greed and its glory. The devil takes Jesus to a high mountain, it says. It just simply means that he puts him into a position where through some sort of power he is able to show him all the glory of the world, all the authority. Can you imagine? Everybody on this earth would be bowing down to him. Every bit of wealth that exists in this world would belong to him. Everybody would see him for the glory that he was. And that's what the devil offers him. 
do you think that we would be able to resist that temptation? We can't even get offered a job for a half a million dollars a year and resist it no matter what the circumstances might be. He was offered the glory of the whole world. We have to be careful with this temptation because we can go on and fall into either ditch. Either what we can do is fall into the ditch of the pietist who believes that the problem of evil is with the material things themselves. So that if you maybe reject the wealth or reject the glory or reject the success, that somehow you are freeing yourself from evil. But the fact of the matter is that evil is in the heart and it's in the eye for the way in which one believes that these things are things that lead to happiness and security. The other side of that ditch is that we are indifferent to or think that materialism and greed and power and glory are things that won't affect us at all. And that we somehow believe that these things truly are going to give us happiness in our life. And when that happens, when we find or believe that those material things are finally going to give to us what it is that we really what, not only deserve, but want to be fulfilled, then we become idolaters. And an idolater is a person who becomes a slave to what he or she worships. To become free from this temptation, there is only one solution. It is this solution that Jesus says that we are to worship God alone. In what way does worship set us free from materialism? I think all we have to do is back up and ask ourselves, where do you suppose true happiness is to be found? Even in our own personal lives, we know that happiness is only to be found in our relationships with one another, by the way that we love one another, by the way that we care for one another, by the way that we know one another. And that's exactly what it is that the worship of God is. It is difficult for us to see the gracious hand of God that lies behind the things that he has given unto us. There was a dog once that a neighbor, a friend of ours, had that he adopted from New York. It was a street dog, had been a dog that belonged to a street person, and that street person had died, and out of kindness, he took the dog. But the dog was a street dog, and you could offer that dog a nice piece of meat, and the dog wouldn't just take the meat, he'd also take the hand that went along with the meat. God gives us all these good and marvelous things and we don't see the hand that is actually giving to us all these blessings. That's because we don't see God's one-sided grace. Those baptismal words spoken to Jesus, you are my son whom I love, what does that mean? That means that even in a scrap of bread, that we can come to see the gracious hand of God. And if we can see the gracious hand of God in the simplest things of life, it sets us free 
from the materialism which would turn us into idolaters. The third temptation that Jesus faces, the devil takes him to a highest, the highest point in the temple, sitting over the Kidron Valley. There, way down below, he encourages him that if he is the Son of God, to throw himself down from there, because it's even written in the Scriptures that the angels would protect him. Because he misquotes the Scripture, leaves a portion out. But I think there's something else that was going on there. What was the devil really doing? That he really did believe that somehow if Jesus would jump, that Jesus would somehow prove to him that he was the Son of God? No. He was actually trying to be able to get him to doubt what had already been said in his baptismal gift. But also, he was trying to remove Jesus' confidence from God's word into the devil becoming convinced that he was the Son of God. That is to say that the devil would have to, would himself justify or declare Jesus to be the Son of God if he saw this happen. This is a subtle thing. The devil wants us to look around ourselves in this world and to rely upon what the world says for who we are. He likes that because, you know, we're imperfect people. And the minute that we are imperfect people and we have an imperfect world, and the world looks at us and the world tells us that we're people who don't have value, or at least we'll only have value if we conform to them. We look around ourselves, even to those that we supposedly love and care for, and they so easily move into that position of being the ones who are going to determine for us what our worth is and whether or not what we are doing is right and whether or not what we are doing makes us a worthwhile person. This is a power that is so subtle, but yet in many respects it's probably one of the worst forms of temptation that we can exist in life. For we live our lives in order that we might receive affirmation from the very world in which we live. And Jesus is able to resist that temptation because he believes the words that were spoken unto him in his baptism. That is to say, nobody has the right to rule your conscience, to determine your worth, to set you at ease with who you are, except God himself. And if we did that on the basis of our works, if we sat there and said, well, God, you're going to call me your child as long as I do what you want me to do, the question is always, have I ever done enough? That's why the doctrine of works righteousness is the most heinous doctrine in the world. What do we believe? Paul says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That the grace of God is given to us apart from any worth that we might have. That when those words are spoken over us, and we probably most of us don't remember because we were baptized as children. When those words were spoken, you are my son whom I love. That's where our worth is to be found. And nobody in this whole world has the right to supersede the word of God 
only God's word is true. All men are liars. How then do we overcome temptation? We overcome temptation not by struggling hard to be able to fulfill what it is that this world demands of us. We overcome the temptation of trying to tempt God by simply believing God's word, sometimes even beyond reason and sense. So the power to face and overcome temptation, the world, the devil, and our own flesh rests solely upon the one-sided grace of God given to us in Christ. A grace that has been vouchsafed to us, promised to us, sealed to us, covenanted, sacramented to us in that wonderful water of baptism where God, by his grace, has washed away our sins in the blood of Christ and justified, declared us to be pardoned, forgiven, children of God, and where he has given to us the gift of his Holy Spirit that we might endure through every trial and tribulation in this life and where our lives are guaranteed and promised by God to give us everlasting life. That is why Jesus, why his sermon, says so much after this temptation. Having defeated the devil, he turns and pronounces this when he goes to his own hometown and preaches his first sermon. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. The poor are those who have nothing with which they might claim to God that he should reward them. The poor are those who have no spiritual worth before God at all. Good news, gospel news to the poor. He has anointed me for this purpose. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, locked up in their greed, locked up in their despair, locked up in that world that would put them into prison and make them into people of the devil's work. Freedom. Recovery of sight for the blind. To release the oppressed. And to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's what Epiphany is all about. Amen. May this peace of God which surpasses all human understanding guard and keep your thoughts and your minds through faith in Christ Jesus unto life everlasting. Amen.